Welcome to this Upila Audio presentation of The Boy Fortune Hunters in Panama by Floyd Akers. Volume 4, Chapter 8, The San Blaze Country We had an early breakfast, and then Ned Britton bade us goodbye and started obediently to descend the river and explore along the coast. He was loath to abandon the more dangerous and fascinating quest for the diamonds, but being loyal to the Corps, he knew how to obey orders without grumbling. Soon as he was away, we began preparations for our own departure. The first thing to arrange for the launching of the convertible automobile, which Moyt had been examining very carefully ever since daybreak. He reported that it had sustained no damage whatever from the storm or the shock of grounding, and was in perfect condition. So all we had to do was to remove the guy ropes and let it slide down the slanting deck to the bulwarks, over which we lifted it with a crane attached to the mizzenmast, and then let the machine descend gently until it rested on the bosom of the river. I was still so skeptical concerning some of Moit's absurd claims that it would not have surprised me to see the huge car sink like a stone. But instead of that, it rode the water like a duck, the wheels half submerged, the rail high above the water line. We now filled the ample lockers beneath the seats with provisions, put in a cask of fresh water in case the river water proved unpalatable, and took along such trinkets as we could gather together for trading purposes. We each carried a brace of revolvers, Moyt and I being slaves, concealing ours, while Nux and Bry carried theirs openly. Finally, we dressed for the excursion. The gay checked suit and tourist cap of Uncle Naboth we gave to Nux, and although they hung rather loosely, he presented a most startling appearance in them. He swung a brass watch-chain of gigantic size across his vest front, and Uncle gave him a few of the big cigars to smoke when he wanted to show off. Bry wore a white duck suit belonging to Duncan Moyd, and to my astonishment looked as aristocratic as any eastern potentate on his first visit to London. These Maoris were by no means bad-looking men, and they took great delight in the transformations we thrust upon them. As for Moyt and myself, we hunted among the sailors' cast-off togs for the most disreputable land clothes we could find, and those we selected were ragged and dirty enough. I wore a run-down shoe upon one foot and a red leather slipper on the other. When I had rumpled my hair and soiled my face and hands, I'm sure I was as disgraceful in appearance as any ragged urchin you would ever come across. I was not wholly satisfied, however, with Duncan. In spite of his apparel, there was so thoughtful a look in his big gray eyes and well-bred and composed expression on his face that he could not look a servant's part as fully as I did. And the best I could hope was that the Sambles people would consider him an unfortunate gentleman in hard luck. There was much laughter and amusement among the men we left behind on the wreck when they beheld our queer appearance. Uncle Naboth chuckled until he coughed, and coughed until he choked, badly frightening those who were unaware that this startling exhibition was usual with him whenever he reached that climax of joy which he called being desperately pleased. I bade him an affectionate farewell, and then we four got into the auto-boat. Moit sprung the paddles from the rims of the wheels and started the engines, and a minute later we were waving our hands to those on the wreck 
and gliding at a good rate of progress up the river. The bulky machine did not draw so much water as one would imagine, owing to its broad displacement and the lightness of the material employed in this construction. We found the gentle current and made such good time that at eleven o'clock we passed between two hills indicated on Maurice Kleppish's map, a copy of which I had brought with us. The current was swifter here because the mounds narrowed the river considerably, but Moyt gave the engines a little more speed, and we went through without abating our rate of progress. Just beyond the hills we saw a group of Indians standing beneath the trees on the left of the bank, and regarding us earnestly but calmly. Perhaps they had seen small steamers and thought our craft belonged to that class, for they exhibited neither fear nor surprise, merely turning their grave faces towards us and remaining otherwise motionless and silent as we glided by. I whispered to Bryonia and Nux to stand up and bow a greeting, which they proceeded to do with amusing and exaggerated dignity. And then I told Nux to box my ears, which he did so promptly, and in such a lusty manner that they rang for several minutes afterwards. I explained to my Maoris at great length our reason for undertaking this queer adventure, and what we expected them to do to carry out the farce and assist us in securing the treasure. I had even read to them the dead man's diary, from beginning to end, so they would know as much about the San Blaise as we did. They were, as I have said, both clever and resourceful, besides being devoted to me personally, so that I felt justified in relying to a great extent upon their judgment in case of emergency. Should I need to give them any secret instructions, I could do so in their own language, which they had taught me during the tedium of several long voyages, and which I prided myself upon speaking fairly well. It was the language of their own South Sea island of Tayaku, for these were not properly Maoris, but natives belonging to a distinct tribe of South Sea Islanders, which owed allegiance to no other ruler than their own. Being aware that the king and some others of the San Blaise knew English and Spanish, I could rely upon this almost unknown dialect to cover any secret instructions I wished to convey to my blacks. Nux and Bry were not linguists, however, and knew but a few Spanish words besides the imperfect English and their native tongue but we arranged that they were to command me to interpret in Spanish whenever necessary. Duncan Moyt, unfortunately, knew nothing but English and French. The tributary that entered the river from the left side was a farther distance beyond the hills than the map seemed to indicate, but we came to it presently and began slowly to ascend it in a southerly direction, although it made many twists and turns. We found it easily navigable and with dense forests at either side and several times we found we were observed by silent groups of Indians on the bank, all of whom, Nux and Bry, bowed greetings with tremendous condescension and mock courtesy. The bows were never returned, however, and the Indians stood like statues until we passed. There was no way of avoiding these people, said Moyt, so I think our best policy would be to go directly to the king's village, which I see marked upon the map, and make friends with him. Bryonia can explain our presence by saying he merely wishes to examine the San Blaise country, and when once we have established friendly relations with these natives, we can visit several different parts of their territory to throw them off guard, and finally reach the valley for which we are bound, and secure the diamonds at our leisure. Well, that seems a pretty wise plan to me, I agreed. 
and we decided then and there to follow it as closely as the circumstances would allow. After an hour's cruise through the forest, we came to the coastal plains, finding this a remarkably fertile country, with fields under fine cultivation. As soon as we discovered a low bank on our left, we turned the machine toward the shore, and when the wheels touched bottom, they climbed the bank easily, and we quickly found ourselves upon dry land. More Indians were observing us, and as we left the water and glided over the land, I detected a look of amazement upon their faces that all their reserve could not control. Indeed, I myself was filled with wonder at the marvelous performance of Duncan Moyt's invention, so that small blame attached to the San Blaise if their stoicism could not master their astonishment. We crossed the plain until we came upon a pretty stream, which we took to be the one indicated upon the map, and from there we followed its course eastward, making excellent time over the level meadows. We saw a few huts scattered along the way, and several herds of sheep and cattle, but no horses. The sheep seemed few to supply the wool for which these Indians were famous, but I imagined that we would find larger flocks in the uplands. It was about five in the afternoon when we sighted a considerable village, which we at once determined must be the place we sought. Bowling along at an increased pace, we soon reached the town, but to our surprise we found our way barred by solid files of Indians, all standing with their arrows readily notched in their bowstrings. Mort stopped the engines and we came to a halt. Hitherto we had been allowed to go where we pleased, since entering the strange land, but it seemed that our license was now at an end. Bry stood up in his seat, made a bow, and said in a loud voice, And he spoke English? America? United States? In an instant we were surrounded by the stern-visaged natives, while one of them, a tall, powerful fellow, and evidently chief, stepped close to the machine and answered in a quiet voice. I speak English. Very good, said Bry. I am great chief of Taiku. My name is Honorable Bryonia. Here's my brother, also great chief of Taiku. He named Senator Nux. We come to visit the chiefs and great king of San Blaise. Then say to me, O oh chief, are we welcome? Are we all brothers? I thought this was a very good introduction, but the chief glanced at me and at Moyd, frowning darkly, and asked, Who are the white men? What bring them here? You speak about our slaves? Bah, have my brothers of San Blaise then no slaves to do their work? The chief considered a moment. Where you get white slaves? He questioned suspiciously. Stand up, Dunk, said Bry, giving the inventor a vicious kick that made him howl. Where we get you, eh? He kicked him again, quite unnecessarily, I thought, and Moyt stood up with a red and angry face and growled. Stop that, you fool! At this rebellion, Nux promptly fetched him a blow behind the knees that sent him tumbling backwards upon his seat. And when I laughed, for I could not help it, I got another ear-splitter that made me hold my head and be glad to keep silent. Moyd evidently saw the force of our blacks' arguments, for he recovered his wits in time to avoid further blows. The exhibition had one good effect, anyway. It lulled any suspicions of the chief that the Honorable Bryonia and Senator Nux might not be masters in our little party. 
Although Duncan Boynton and I constantly encountered looks of bitter hatred, our men were thereafter treated with ample respect and consideration. You're welcome, said the chief. I, Ogo, Captain Ogo, Green Chief, you come to my house. He turned and marched away, and Moit started the machine and made it crawl after him. The other natives followed in a grave procession, and so we entered the village and passed up its clean-looking streets between rows of simple but comfortable huts to the further end where we halted at the domicile of the Green Chief. Chapter 9. Facing the Enemy Ogo made an impressive bow in the direction of his mud mansion, and then another bow to Nux and Bry. Come, he said. They accepted the invitation and climbed out of the machine. Don't be long, Nux, I remarked in the Tayaku dialect. Instantly, the chief swung around on his heel. What does this mean? he cried, speaking in the same language. You receive orders from your white slaves? I stared at him, open-mouthed, and to my intense admiration, neither Nux nor Bryonia exhibited the least surprise. Orders? asked Bry quietly. Do you blame us that the whites are fools and speak like fools? My brother has surely more wisdom than that. If you knew the white dogs, you would believe their tongues are like the tongues of parrots. I know them, answered Ogo grimly. Then he asked abruptly, Where did you learn the language of my people, the ancient speech of the Teclas? It's my own language, the speech of my people of Taiku, whose chief I am. They looked upon each other with evident curiosity and examined the two Indians as they stood side by side, and wondered at their similar characteristics. Bryonia might easily be mistaken for a brother of the San Blaise chief, so far as appearances went, and although Nux was of a different build, there were many duplicates of him in the silent crowd surrounding us as well. Where is Tayaku? asked Ogo. Far to the south, in the Pacific Ocean. What is the history of your people? I do not know. Are there many of you? But a few inhabiting a small island. The chief seemed thoughtful. Then he turned again. Come, he commanded, and they followed him into his house. Duncan Moyt was clearly puzzled by this conversation, carried on in a language unknown to him. What was all that about, Sam? he inquired in a low voice. The Maoris and the San Blaise speak the same language. Anything wrong? No, our chances are better than ever, I guess. Fifty pairs of eyes were staring at us curiously, so we decided not to converse further at present. We stared in turn at the natives, who seemed not to object to the least. Without question, the San Blaise were the best-looking Indians I had ever seen. They resembled somewhat the best of the North American Indian tribes, but among them was a larger proportion of intelligence and shrewdness. Their faces were frank and honest, their eyes large and expressive, and they moved in a self-possessed and staid manner that indicated confidence in their powers and contempt for all enemies. Their costumes were exceedingly interesting, 
Men and women alike wore simple robes of finely woven wool that were shaped somewhat like Greek tunics. The arms of the men were bare, the women had short flowing sleeves, and this was the only perceptible difference in the garb of the two sexes, except that most of the men wore sandals of bark, while the women and children were barefooted. The tunic was their sole garment and reached only to the knees, being belted at the waist. The women, I afterwards learned, wove the cloth in their houses as one of their daily occupations, and the body of the tunic was always white, with colored stripes worked in at the neck and around the bottom. These colors, which must have been vegetable dyes, were a very brilliant hue, including purple, orange, red, blue, and yellow. Black was never used at all, and green was the color reserved for nobles and the king. I noticed that the chief, Ogo, had a narrow band of green on his robe, which explained his proudly proclaiming himself a green, or a royal chief. The bands of green we found varied in width according to the prominence of their weavers. One can easily imagine that the appearance of an automobile in this country, isolated as it was from all modern civilization, would be likely to inspire the natives with awe and wonder, if not actual terror. Yet these queer people seemed merely curious. They knew nothing at all of mechanics, existing in the same simple fashion that their ancestors had done centuries before, plowing their land with sharpened sticks and using arrows and spears as their only weapons, except for the long bronze knives that were so roughly fashioned as to be well-nigh ridiculous. The only way one can explain the stolid demeanor of these Indians is through their characteristic fearlessness and repression, which enabled them to accept any wonderful thing without displaying emotion. But they were interested nonetheless, and their eyes roved everywhere about the machine, and only we, the accursed whites, were disregarded. After an hour or so, Nux and Bryonia came out of the house accompanied by the chief. They had broken bread together and tasted a native liquor, so that they might now depend upon the friendship of their host unless he found that they had deceived him. This was a long stride in the right direction, but when they had asked to see the king, they were told that his residence was several miles away to the east, and then in the morning Ogo would escort them to the royal dwelling and introduce them to the mighty Nalignad. In the meantime, Nux and Bryonia were given plain instructions not to leave the village. And when they were invited to sleep in the chief's house, they were able to decline by asserting that they always lived in their magic traveling machine. This excuse had been prearranged for us, for we deemed it best not to separate or leave the machine while we were in the enemy's country. As soon as the Maoris had re-entered the machine, they commanded me in abusive language to prepare supper. Duncan at once got out our table, which was a folding contrivance he had arranged to set up in the center of the car, and then I got the alcohol stove from its locker and proceeded to light it. While I made coffee and set the table with food we had brought, Nux and Bryonia lolled on their seats and divided the admiring glances of the surrounding villagers with the, to them, novel preparations I was making for the repast. Then the Maoris sat at the table, and I waited upon them with conical deference. Moit being unable to force himself to take part in this farce. 
Afterwards, we had our own suppers, and I, for one, relished it more than I usually did. In my boyish fashion, I regarded it all as a great lark and enjoyed the humor of the situation. As it was growing dark, I now lit our lamps while the inventor drew the sections of the glass dome into place and fashioned them together. We could still be observed by those without, for although the top was provided with curtains, we did not draw them. But now we were able to converse without being overheard, and Nux and Bry, appearing to be talking with each other, related all that had transpired in the chief's house, while we commented upon it and our good fortune upon the present time. After we visited the king and made friends with him, we shall be able to go anywhere we please, I prophesied, and then it won't take us long to get those diamonds and make tracks back to the wreck again. To this we all were agreed. Then Duncan remarked amusingly, It is strange you two Indian nations, so far removed, speak the same language. True enough, Master Moy, replied Bry, but I suspect our folks come from the same country as these San Blaise did, and that accounts for it. This fact ought to help us with them, I said. Sure thing, Master Moss. They knows now that we're just as good as they is, and we know he's better, Nux responded. As we were tired with our day's excursion, we soon removed the table and spread our blankets upon the roomy floor of the car. Then, with a courtesy we had not anticipated, the crowd of observers melted silently away. By the time we were ready to put out the lights and draw the curtains, we were alone in the village street, where not a sound broke the stillness. Chapter 10 Nalignat We slept nicely in our rather confined quarters, and at daybreak Bryonia arose and prepared breakfast, while the curtains were still drawn. But as soon as he and Nux had cleared away the breakfast things, we let down the top and appeared in our open car again. The rabble did not come near to us this morning, however. Perhaps the chief thought their intent observation undignified and had ordered them to keep away. But behind Ogo stood ten tall warriors who had been selected as our escort or bodyguard. When we signified we were ready for the journey, these formed a line of march. Three in front, three behind and two on either side. All were armed with stout spears, and each bore a bow and a quiver of bronze-tipped arrows, as well as a knife stuck into his girdle. When we started, the chief brought up the rear of the procession, so that he could keep an eye on us. Duncan Moyt resented the necessity of running his machine at a slow pace, but when he started it in an ordinary walk, he soon found that the Indians were accustomed to swing long at a much swifter rate, so we gradually increased our speed, and it was comical to see the solemn-visaged warriors trying to keep up with us without running. Finally, however, I made Moit slow down after a while, for I did not wish to provoke the Sambles at present, and thought it wiser to show them some slight consideration. The plains we were now crossing were remarkably rich and fertile, and we passed many farms where men were cultivating the soil by dragging sharpened sticks over the surface, and other places were fields of grain ready for the harvest. And Nux questioned the chief and learned that the climate was so uniform the year round that several crops could be grown in rapid succession. 
They used no beasts of burden, but performed all the labors with their own muscles. There were no roads leading from one place to another, merely paths over the meadows to indicate lines of travel. The houses were formed partly of logs and partly of clay, baked in the sun. They were simple and somewhat rude in construction, but appeared to be quite comfortable. So far we had seen little evidence of luxury refinement. It was nearly noon when we approached a circular enclosure, which proved to be a stockade of clay held together with brushwood until the sun had hardened it to brick. There was an arched opening in this wall, and Moit obeyed a signal from Ogo and headed toward it. Entering the enclosure, we found a large, rambling dwelling in the center, and a row of smaller houses circling the inner side of the wall. A large space was thus left around the central building, which we naturally concluded to be a king's palace. Not a sound broke the silence to which these natives seemed to be trained. Except on extraordinary occasions, the San Blaise did not chatter. They only spoke when they were required to say something of meaning. The chief directed us to halt before a small door of the palace. Get out, he commanded in the native tongue, and follow me to the presence of our ruler, the mighty Nalignab. Bryonia and Nux at once obeyed, but the chief motioned for us to come also. We hesitated, and Bry said, One of our slaves must remain in the machine to care for it. The other may accompany us. Both must come, returned the chief sternly. What? Do you give orders? Do you command the Honorable Bryonia, King of Tyaku? demanded our Maori, drawing himself up proudly and frowning upon Ogo. The king shall decide, returned the chief. Come. I followed the men and Duncan who remained with the machine. We passed through a hallway and came upon a central courtyard built in the Spanish style. Here, upon a rude bench, sat an old warrior with a deeply lined face and long locks sprinkled with gray. His eyes were large and black and so piercing in their gaze they seemed to probe one through and through. Yet the expression of the man's countenance was just now gentle and unassuming. He had neither the stern nor the fierce look we had remarked in so many of the Sanblaise, but one might well hesitate to deceive the owner of that square chin and eagle-like glance. The king wore a white robe with seven broad stripes of green woven into its texture, and on his knees were seated two children, a curly-headed little maid of about ten years old and a calm-faced boy of five. His surroundings were exceedingly simple, and the only others present were a group of warriors squatting in a far corner. "'Well, you are here at last,' said the Lignab, looking at us over the heads of the children as we ranged ourselves before him, and bowed with proper deference. "'Which is your leader?' "'My friend, the Senator Nux and I, the Honorable Bryonia, are alike kings and rulers in our own country.' was the reply. But my friend is modest, and at his request, I will speak for us both. Good, ejaculated Malignat. Sit down, my brothers. Kings must not stand in my presence. I sat upon a bench, and Nux, thinking this the right time to be impressive, got out a big cigar and lit it, having offered another to the king, who promptly refused. 
Why are you here to honor me with your presence? Was the next question, quietly put. In our magic traveling machine, we are making a trip around the world, began Bryonia in a bombastic tone. They were speaking in the native dialect, which I clearly understood, and I must say that my men expressed themselves much better than they did in English. The king took a bit of green chalk from his pocket and made a mark upon the bench beside him. Where did you get your white slaves? he inquired. They were shipwrecked upon the island which we ruled, and we made them our slaves, said Bry. The king made a second chalk mark. And where did you get the magic machine for traveling both on land and water? It was evident he had been well informed of our movements. It was made for us by a wizard of our island, said Bry. What island? Tayaku. A third chalk mark was made. Does it belong to you? Yes. Another mark. And now, said the king, looking at them curiously, tell me what request you have to make. A request? Yes. You are to see the king of the Sun Blaze. Then you wish something. I am the king. Prionia hesitated. We wish to see all things he said slowly. And so we crave permission to visit the different parts of your country that we may observe what it is like. Just as a matter of curiosity. Of course, my brother. A chalk mark. Do you love gold? asked the king abruptly. No, we do not care for gold. Not at all? Not in the least. The chalk mark again. Nor the white pebbles? Looking at them shrewdly. We care for no pebbles at all. Why all black? Asserted Bry, beginning to grow uneasy. The king made another mark and then slowly counted them. Seven lies, he announced, shaking his head gravely. My brother is not honest with me. Otherwise there would be no lies. Nux put the wrong end of the cigar in his mouth and began to splutter and make faces. Bryonia looked at the king, stern and indignant. Do you judge us by the whites? he cried. No, I have found that the whites are quick to acknowledge their love of gold. If you were in my country, I would not insult my brother king, said Bry proudly. What would you do if I lied to you? asked the lignad quickly. You would not lie, declared Bry. Kings do not lie to each other, unless they're white. I wanted to yell bravo. The retort was so cleverly put. The king seemed pleased and became thoughtful, stroking the little boy's hair gently while the girl rested her pretty head against his broad bosom. The Teclas have reason to hate the whites, he said with a keen glance at me. They drove us from our home because they wanted to rob us of our gold, which we loved only because it was beautiful. They were cruel and unjust and lied to us and had no faith nor honesty. So we fled. But we swore to hate them forever and to be cruel and unjust to them in turn whenever they fell into our hands. I do not blame your people, declared Bry stoutly. Tell me then, why do you of the Tayaku hate them and make them your slaves? 
Why? Yes, had you gold? No. Nor white pebbles? No. Then why do you hate them? Because they are dangerous and wicked. They come in ships to our islands and try to make us slaves. We fight them and drive them away, but they take some of my people and lash them with whips and make them work like beasts. Also, some of the whites we capture, like these we now have with us, and then we love to force them to do our bidding. Never has there been a friendship between the white men and the men of Tayaku. He spoke very earnestly, and I knew he was telling the truth, in the main, for I'd heard the same thing before. It was only because Uncle Naboth had saved the lives of these two blacks and been kind to them that they came to love us and to abandon the fierce hatred for whites that had been part of their training from birth. I will buy your white slaves, said the king coolly, and then you may go where you will in my kingdom. We will not part with them. They must work for us and make our machine go. If it is magic, it does not need slaves to make it go observed the king with a smile. Would you deprive your brother kings of their only followers? I will give you as many negroes as you require in place of them. We cannot spare them. These white dogs know our ways and serve us well. Then I will take but one and leave you the other. Bry shook his head. Whatever else we possess, except our wonderful traveling machine, we will freely give to our brother. But even the Lingnan has no right to demand our slaves, so we shall keep them. The king seemed disappointed. After a moment's pause, he said, Think about it, and in the meantime, make my home your home. We will talk of these matters again. He waved his hand in dismissal and turned to caress the children. Ogo, the chief, said sternly, Come. But Bry stood still. Have we the king's permission to visit his dominions and our machine while we are his guests? he asked. Not yet, replied Delignad, with the first touch of impatience he had shown. We will talk again before you leave my village. That does not sound friendly. Have you done anything to forfeit my friendship? inquired the king, turning a swift glance upon the speaker. Be content. Only in the king's village shall the brothers and guests of the king remain in peace and comfort. My people shall be your servants, and you may command them as you will, but you must not go outside the wall. He did not like this, and stood a moment silent. Seems to me, King Honorable Bryonia, said Nock, speaking for the first time during the interview and addressing his friend point blank, as if the king's presence was immaterial. Seems to me this new brother, King Nalignad, is not a bad fellow. I like him because he is kind to little children, though I'm sorry for him because he is not better informed. But what can you expect when he stays in this one-horse place and knows nothing of the great world that bows at our feet? If he dares oppose your will, remember how poor and ignorant he is, and forgive him. I know what you're thinking, great King Honorable Bryonia, but I beg you not to destroy Nalignad yet or to explode his people with the terrible power you possess. Let us be patient. Permit this king to live on, for a short time anyway. What a shame to ruin this happy home. Be patient, my mighty brother, 
and so this foolish Dalignan will have wisdom, and willingly grant all that you desire. Having delivered himself of this long speech, Nux puffed his cigar again and looked at the king with a face expressive of great sympathy and concern. Both Brian and I were fairly astounded. We had not expected Nux to take part in the discussion, and the pleading tone he had adopted was as good a bit of acting as Bryonia had exhibited. It impressed the king even more than Bryonia's dignified assurances, although at first I trembled at the folly of threatening so clever and powerful a man as Delignad. After all, he was merely a savage, and more liable to suspect us of unknown powers than of unsupported audacity. We soon discovered that Nux had grasped the situation more clearly than we had. The ruler of the San Blaise was used to trickery and cunning, and had trained himself to search for hidden reasons in all his dealings with outsiders. The suggestion that the owners of the strange traveling machine, who had so boldly invaded his country, had the intention and power of exploding himself and all his people struck him as more reasonable than anything he had yet heard. He was visibly worried and looked half fearfully at the stern and impassive countenance of the tall South Sea Islander who stood before him. We will break bread, he said with a quick decision. Send away your slave, my brothers, and come with me. Go, though, said Bry, turning to me. And go you also, Chief Ogo, he added imperatively. We will be alone with the king. The chief looked uneasily toward Lignad, who had set the children down and allowed them to run into the house. Noting the look, the king bowed his head to affirm Bry's command. He might with reason fear his strange guests, but he was no coward. I left the courtyard, followed by Ogo, and returned to where the automobile was standing. <laughs>